Well, if you really want to do something important with your day, it's time to wake and bake. Captain Hooter, put it down for him. John Sally out. It's Captain Hooter. Good morning. Good morning. We look acting. Buenos dias. Hello. Everybody online looking good. Morning. Sawadi krab. Good night. Dobro ranku. Bon dia. Como everyone. Captain Hooter here, coming to you high and alive and a little bit excited. I'm getting ready to play Affected the Manor, virtual reality in a haunted house. Guess who else has got a haunted house? Chris Tiari. That's right. And he's my guest today. Very special guest. And he runs the 420 Hotels. You are going to love this interview. And I am about to step through the doors. So, I'm sure I'm looking behind everything around here, you know. Uh, you guys enjoy this. Oh, shit. Uh-oh. Okay, you guys, you guys enjoy the interview. Uh, I'll be back right after. I hope. I'll be back right after. Hola, hola, everyone. Captain Hooter here, back once again, high and alive for another great Wake and Bake. And today we have one of the true innovators in our industry. The man is the head of the 420 Hotel, future dynasty, the current uh, uh, legendary leader at uh, the Patterson Hotel in Denver, Colorado. This is uh, Chris Chiari. How are you, sir? I'm good, sir. And Chiari, if you could say Chianti, you can say Chiari. <laughs> Fantastic. My apologies. Let me no, redo please. it. How uh, would I have it? ever put that little quip in if you didn't mispronounce uh, it? <laughs> okay, well, then we'll leave it there. That way, anybody else that comes along, they'll know to make sure to pronounce your name right. How are you today, sir? I'm good. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Wake and Bake. I'm uh, happy Wake and Bake. Got my cup of coffee we're, here. We're, we're, uh -huh. Jar of cannabis right here. Fantastic. What are you smoking there? Super Lemon Haze, my favorite strain. Mm. Beautiful narrow leaf, one of my favorites as well. Uh, mm. Do you change your cultivars? Oh, wait, wait, wait! I didn't see it. You got to tilt it a little bit more. There's, there's not much left. It's time to go. Oh, okay. Go. We're we're down to the dregs. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's a. Uh, uh, do you change your cultivars and how you smoke during the day? Um, like narrow leaf in the morning, broad leaf in the evening. I don't. I'm a narrow leaf fan. Um, broad leaf. Some of the terpenes, especially, and I'm, I'm, Eumulus is the one I think that's causing me the issues, but certain hybrids that certainly lead broadleaf, uh, a lot of people smoke that for relaxation. It knocks me out. And I know that's great to go to bed, but I have a flight of stairs in the house. So if I smoke uh, a broadleaf indica 
with the terpenes that just respond in a way that knock me out. I'm sleeping on the couch that night, not up in my bed. So now I generally stick to uh, super lemon haze or narrow leaf um, limine and pinene uh, leaning um, cultivar cultivars. Really like things like Durban poison. Uh, and like I said, super lemon haze, favorite strains. Uh, but legacy strains, I grew up in New York City and my 30s had access to some of the um, originators of, of sour diesel. So New York sour diesel, mm. uh, when it comes along, it's, it's, I'm always happy to partake in a little sour diesel. Oh, fantastic. Can you already imagine the time when you'll have your in-house uh, cultivars? And uh... so that would be a day far in the future. Right now, what I'm building and what I went and, and went for was a bring your own cannabis uh, license. Denver offered two pads, bring your own or buy the gram. And what I realized was where I am in the heart of Denver, we're not looking and short places to purchase or points of sale. What we're short are points of consumption. And what they've said in the rule, and think of it like a bar. If you go into a bar and bring a small airplane bottle and try to top off your drink, you're usually kicked out. Uh, because liquor code says that you can't allow people to bring in outside alcohol to your licensed establishment. And they literally put that into the rules around cannabis. I had created a point of sale location, my goal is to create this hospitable room where I can say, welcome, you can smoke that here, something that isn't available, and to offer that as amenity. If I made it also a point of sale, then I have to say, oh, but you can't smoke that here, which goes counter. You shared with me, you have a lifetime of experience in hospitality, and the basis of hospitality is to make people feel welcome, to give them open opportunities to experience and engage in your amenity and in the hopes then that they'll have an experience that leads to a great recommendation a referral to a friend or a return visit there's hospitality so rules that would have literally required me to train staff to engage to the negative to deny you this ability didn't work for the model for me which is overnight hospitality with the most exciting and unique amenity in america right now Right. Did you try or uh, consider going different routes like uh, as, a, as a private club or a private type of a uh, institution? Would that allow, would they allow you to do it if you went that route? There have been a lot of businesses that have gone that route. It falls under that category of cannabis friendly. And for those of us that have consumed long enough to have engaged in any layer with legacy markets, right? Cannabis friendly is something that's appealing that we have likely sought out in local and state and national and international travel, right? We've looked for cannabis friendly destinations, places sure. where we know that those conversations, the engagement of those conversations are easier, more comfortable, more familiar, more friendly. And those types of communal environments, because cannabis has always been very generous. For me, it was always something that was shared, which has proven to still be true as we move into legalized markets. But the business that I have at the end of the day is a hotel. Business I have at the end of the day has a mortgage. So required and requires traditional banking in order to carry an asset like this. I've recently just filed my Form C and launched a registered crowdfund campaign on Republic. So I'm excited to be selling equity, not just in a one-off location, but in the vision for a hotel chain built off of our first owned location in Denver with the fortuitous address of 420 East 11th. Patterson Inn, if you were to go to pattersonin.com, you'll see a picture of the house. And right off the first impression for me 
was a castle sitting on a hill, actually inspired my business logo, the King of Clubs holding a bong, which all happened a little over 11 years ago, first time I set eyes on what was an abandoned property at the time. Address was over the door, over the keystone, over the front door, 420. 420. And I pointed up to the property and I said, I want to turn you into a marijuana bed and breakfast. Fast forward 11 years, you know, King of Quality inspired by that was a way that I wanted to use it to start conversations in a space that though I had been a consumer and have consumed for well over 30 years, here you'll like this, Stanislavski said that in life you don't master anything unless you've done it for 30 years. Right. Cannabis is the one thing I have consistently done for 31 years of my life. Now, open as part of my lean in, everyone knows, and I'm not hiding in the shadows of my consumption, use, or possession. That's 11 years now. Multi-time, multi-state failed political candidate. Didn't think it was appropriate to share that I was a cannabis consumer. And I have to admit that when I was in South Florida, access to quality cannabis for me didn't exist. I didn't have those relationships. Remember in college, a, a friend's father said that the older you get, the better the cannabis you'll find gets. That proved to be true, even before uh, we've moved into these legal markets and away from legacy. And as you built better relationships, you found access to better uh, quality. Right. So, right? I, and, but, but the, the, to, to be sure, though, I mean, because in Spain, for an example, the closest to what you want to do is, is in Spain. Sure. Um, right now, uh, you mm -hmm. can consume alcohol, you can consume uh, grass, you can buy it, you can stay, you can party in these all these different themed uh, environments. Uh, they don't have that in Amsterdam still. Uh, they still have right. a ton of different restrictions in Amsterdam, which which are horrendous. Um, I, I was curious, or I'm not curious, I love like what you're trying to do in the way you're partitioning things around. Because I mean, you obviously went through the ringer here in order to try to get this done. And that's why I asked about the club. Is it something, is that one of the things that you considered? Because you've obviously considered a zillion different possibilities. I didn't want to operate gray, knowing that we, one day there could be a path to licensed and knowing, and when I saw the house 11 years ago, my vision was to bring it to the crowd. My hope was that I could bring it to the market, that I could offer it to a larger audience to buy equity in this ground for an opportunity around cannabis hospitality. And 11 years ago, when I first said that out loud to the house, cannabis wasn't legal yet. When I bought the hotel four years ago, May 31st, 2018, coming up on a four-year anniversary in two days from the time we're having this conversation. Uh, when I bought the hotel, cannabis hospitality didn't exist. I know that because the window didn't open until uh, November 11th of 2021 yeah, uh, at six o'clock in the morning. The portal opened. I had my computer open on my lap. I had my uh, draft applications ready to go and all my files re positioned, ready to go. And that application was in within 55 minutes. Wow. And I was the first one to submit. It took three weeks for anyone else to get an application in. But I've been waiting for a long time for this. You know, when I looked at the hotel, it was, uh, again, it was an abandoned property 11 years ago. I got beat out by two weeks. The mother and son that renovated it, turned it into a hotel. Patterson, in, when I bought it four years ago, operates with a hotel, a restaurant, a liquor license, and a live entertainment license. These are the active licenses in the business. Liquor license was restricted, though. You could only serve to a registered guest of the hotel, not to the public. 
I had to rezone the property. It was the first step to position for the Cannabis Hospitality Lounge. I had a residential property that had the legal use as a hotel or a small bed and breakfast. Mm -hmm. I asked community support, got it to say, look, I want to build to an 11 room hotel. And I asked for permission to open the bar to the public. Uh, The bar actually opened last weekend. Um, Actually, Friday the 13th was our uh, soft opening. And then Friday, May 27th was our official open. So the tavern now called 12 Spirits is open to the public. This complicates the business because here I now have hotel, restaurant, uh, liquor, tavern, and I'm adding cannabis hospitality. And in Denver, those licenses could be adjacent to each other in a commercial business, but they couldn't be accessible. You couldn't move between the businesses would have required if I kept alcohol to make a cannabis consumer go outside of the hotel around to the alley to come back in. Not really hospitality if you're doing that. Uh, What I did in the end and what I realized and what's happened is the separation of all these licenses and the separate companies opened a path. So now Patterson Inn is a hotel restaurant. 12 Spirits Tavern is a tavern live entertainment venue, and the 420 Denver, a tenant in this now commercial property, is the uh, pending licensee for the cannabis hospitality operations. That's brilliant, dude. Really clever. Now, if you just need the next step so that everybody can just flow where they should be going, right? And uh, uh, in and out. Now, I was going to ask you about that now. The, the, that's the that threshold was... between alcohol and cannabis that right now are nowhere near even being on a convergent path or divergent conversations in every space. Mm-hmm. But what we're building here at the 420 Hotels, what my vision is and what I'm trying to execute, the celebration of normalization and destigmatization of cannabis possession and consumption will be a threshold of about two inches. That will be the difference between where alcohol will legally be able to be consumed and cannabis will be legally a license allowed to be consumed. And that threshold will will go from miles, if non-existent, to two inches. And one day we'll open that door. And when you open that door, think of all the wonderful uh, meritage of of flavors and connections that you'll be able to do between the two of them. I enjoy both. Certain cannabis cultivars and the cocktails we're selling at the bar, if they ever could be paired, they'd be phenomenal. Mm. Uh, wine, right? That that effect on the palate that both cannabis has for those of us that truly are a connoisseur or a fan of its nuance and seek that out in that experience. Yes, I smoke my Super Lemon Haze, but I also have the privilege of judging in Uncle Stoner's Squash Off multiple that, times. Yeah, And uh, Squash Off is absolutely a place where uh, variety, um, the palate can be tested, right? The uniqueness is only temple. 15 to 20 strains, right? Thousands and thousands upon thousands of potential uh, combinations are, are available to the world in, in cannabis cultivation will be experienced over time, uh, but still to get to experience 15 to 20 different uh, strains, both as flower and then as, as fresh pressed rosin. A few, few, I think, are up to the challenge, but it's, uh, it's, it's a privilege, and it's, I find it to be a lot of fun, uh, both from the physical effect as you experience different uh, cultivars, all the way through again the palate, the taste, the smell. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is your? Uh, do you do you use the uh, the little nectar collector? Is that your? Uh... Or, We've been or, using. Uh, I have one of the squash off nectar collectors. That's a that's a it's a beautiful piece, right, with the quartz tip. 
uh, we've moved to some more of the electronic tools. Right? Easy to clean, easy to use, easy to regulate the temperature. And when you're judging, that, that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Some venues are no longer excited about us using torches. I, I, you know, I've been talking about the torch thing from the very beginning. Um, and and I, I, was told to, I was told to get over it. And I understand, get over it. It's just, you know, if you're going to open it up to a wider swath of the of the world, um, that one element is the element I would try to get eliminated as quickly as possible. It's intimidating, but you now have the nectar collector type electric pens. You have the larger glass topped um, electric bongs for concentrates and oils. Their their uh, learning curve is is push the power button, watch these colors change, wait till it yeah. vibrates to start and finish, and that's a really accessible place. Uh, when the nectar pens right, let go of the button, finish inhaling. It's it's a, a pretty good learning curve, and it does make it a little bit more comfortable. I don't. We will not be able to have torches in the lounge, and I'm comfortable with that. But right. we will have whatever the latest technology is in either e-nails, though I think we've moved past that in more battery-operated devices. Mm-hmm. But those battery-operated devices, again, offer an easy-to-take-off and clean glass top. Think of this. you know, I'm in a licensed environment. So this won't be come on in, bring your pipe. If it's your pipe, that's fine. But if it's something we offer you, whether it's a pipe or a bong or a top or an accessory or a mouthpiece, those parts will be cleaned and sanitized. That the closest place this might look like a bar, even though we won't be a sales destination, will be in the sanitizing and cleaning of these single use or group use items at your discretion, right at your table, um, that we'll be able to provide or will want to provide. That'll be high heat, you know, chemical sanitation to make sure that these items meet standards, health codes. That means likely that if you want the experience of a well weathered and resin pipe, like I'm certain you're smoking today, mm-hmm. that's something that you'll bring or share with a friend. We'll be giving you one that'll look like it's fresh out of the 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 glass blowers sure. um, shop. So I don't know. Did you ever? Were you familiar with the uh, Lowell Farms? Yeah, um, no. Love, yeah. I had a, had a chance to smoke some of the. Oh, well, I know the cafe you're talking about. Yes. Right, right. So, yeah. so what they did in their concept uh, essentially was that you would go in and you would purchase your, your cultivars and you would pay a, an, an upcharge on those cultivars, just like you would if you were buying a bottle of wine. Okay. And, and in return, you, there was a great restaurant and you could get drinks and uh, you were able to then, they would give you a tray. And the tray had all of your weapons already there for you, right? And so you had a choice, a plethora of all of these different things that you could use to smoke with. And they would provide you, obviously, anything else that you needed. I spoke with one of the early innovators that was part of that team. And it was really fun talking to her because the nuance between the separation of these entities and how those of us doing this have gotten there, uh, we shared a very similar story. So it was fun. It was it was absolutely talking to a peer, right? What I'm doing right now is not what we all wake up every morning and say, hey, I'm going to tackle what it means to deal with 60 CFM per person in air clean, uh, air cleanliness and airflow in a smoke-filled environment. And what does that right. look like in a thousand square foot room uh, is not what, what I certainly did professionally or for leisure 
prior to this, uh, but I'm right. getting- I wanted to ask you more about that because that's a really hardcore part of this, of what you're going through right now, which has to do with the uh, air uh, restriction system, the air that yes. takes, it takes everything out. Now I've been in some cigar lounges Mm -hmm. um, where they have a system that is like this. I'm not sure if it's the same one that, that yours is, but it's You're talking a place... about a more modern, right? Anything that's probably less than 10 years old. Yeah, yeah, this was modern. And you, it, you were, I mean, you lit the cigar and as soon as you, you're, you're it's gone. It's so, just gone. <laughs> normal airflow standards is 0.6 cubic feet per minute per person. The standards for a smoke-filled environment is now 60 cubic feet per minute per person. That's 100 times increased standard in a smoke-filled environment. And so very few municipalities got rid of hookah or cigar lounge, but many, if not most municipalities, especially across America, have implemented this international standard around 60 CFM. So I have a 1,000 square foot space. It's meant, you said private club before, my lounge will not be open to the public. It really is an amenity to the guests, guests of guests. So that's your access point. And if you're a business professional and you wanna host a client, that's absolutely a path in. That's cool. As well as limited, but um, annual membership. So that there will be multiple, and it's all about giving access then to the cannabis lounge to the front door of the hotel, and then ultimately into the lounge. Um, Come back to the question. See you right. <laughs> Cheers. That's oh, okay. We're talking about, yes, we're talking about HVAC. Okay. So 60 CFM. So my room is 1,000 square feet with roughly a 10 foot ceiling. So it's 10,000 cubic feet of air in the space. And 60 times my occupancy in the room, which is 42. Again, it's an intimate lounge on a large venue, 42 people. 42 comes at 2,520 CFM. So 2,520 cubic feet per minute of air needs to be moved through this room through the HVAC system. That means flipping the air in this room every four minutes. Every drop of air will be replaced every four minutes. But the standard also requires that that be fresh air. So that meant that in the winter when it's minus six in Denver, I'd have to pull 2,520 cubic feet per minute of air into the space heat it from minus six to 70, suck it immediately out and vent it outside and then do the reverse in the summer. And what I told the city was, I might be uh, willing and, and stubborn enough to build this thing, but I am not willing to turn it on. So I had a very <laughs> high level meeting with a head of engineering, head of excise and license, head of environmental, my design team, which I brought on great engineers, knew I needed a good MEP team for the mechanical and the engineering part of these designs, they gave me a six-figure system that I just would have never turned on because it would have been $2,500 a month on average to heat and cool this space for a thousand square feet, more than it costs to heat and cool and electrify the rest of the surrounding hotel by multiple. So it didn't wow. make sense. Uh, excise and license was honest, Not, no path. The designers were like, Chris, we wish we could do something, but this is the standard. You experienced it in these other places. And then the head of engineering, I picked up my pen and I said, what is the power of your pen? And he offered and shared a path to an amendment. So right now we are in final design and are about to make a presentation to the city where instead of 60 CFM, as long as we can prove equivalency we're building a system that will clean, 
scrub, move that volume of air, bring in a fraction of the 60 CFM as fresh air, mm -hmm. and by recapturing no less than 60 to 80% of the recirculation of the air, we're recapturing 65 to 80% of the energy of the heating and cooling of that air and creating efficiency then in the system. And the engineers have never designed anything like this. Infinity MEP, they're who I will refer everyone to, I promised them I would, um, because they'll now know how to build this, how to do this, especially on a more intimate scale space like this. Obviously, nobody understands what a contact high is. There, it's going to be hard to get contact high in this room. Now, you know, it comes down to what is assumed to be the carcinogenic effect of, of smoke yeah. in the smoke environment. And yeah. I don't know if you're, I, I grew up on the East Coast. I went to college up in Worcester, Massachusetts. I caught one of the last Amtrak trains from uh, Worcester through Springfield down into New York. And they used to have a smoking car in the back. <laughs> and it had that pneumatic curtain, right? And you would walk into the car and you were in this little vestibule and it was just clean, fresh air because that curtain, and then you'd walk into this cloud. Cloud of uh, cancer. As a former cigarette smoker, that was. That was my favorite train ride. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I still talk about that. You know, it's funny when you come over to Europe, um, especially if you, you know, I was in California, my last uh, stop there. And it, it's such a dramatic difference because so many people smoke. And you know that's one of the other elements also is how many people smoke hashish uh, here mm -hmm. in Europe versus mm -hmm. there. Do you is there a big hashish market uh, there in in Colorado? Yeah, the biggest thing we have, of course, is extraction and dab. And so butter, shatter, uh, rosin is hash. Let's get to the roots of what it is, right? It's an extracted form, solventless or non-solvent, sift or or processed. It's still tricone concentration tricones and terpenes and the wonderful psychoactive chemicals, the CBDs, CBNs, and all these other photogenic and um, psychoactive chemicals that are in the plant. Um, so yeah, we have a, a great hash scene, but an entity did finally emerge that's doing a more traditional sifted hash. So they're doing a Moroccan and the Lebanese style. And what's fascinating is it's single strain, right? So it's not regional cultivation or the culmination of a regional's um, output or crop literally is strain specific as a product of this, you know, um, regulated um, market. Uh, so it's starting to come out, but, you know, flour, it's still the big debate, right? 30% of our market is a uh, third is edibles. A third is extracted rosins and hashes to process hash. And about sure. a third is flour. How's your pricing there? Pricing? Yeah. Uh, there's a big discussion in Colorado about how, wow, sales between last year and this year have dropped 3%. And does this mean that we've peaked? And does this mean that, that cannabis has reached its, its climax? And then you have to dig into those numbers. I buy an ounce at a time. The price of the ounce of super lemon haze after tax went from 220 to 250 last year to a pretty consistent 150 to 175 this year. Wow. That is a greater than 3% drop in the retail price, mm -hmm. not even including drops or fluctuations, of course, in the wholesale price. And yet we only saw a 3% drop in total revenue in Colorado. 
And so the honest truth is, is that cannabis and the, the, the volume of cultivation, and the production of edibles and extracted products and flour in Colorado is actually still growing and growing at a pace and at a volume significant enough to absorb an almost one third price cut, but only a 3% drop in total sales. Wow. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because you're on, if you follow the track of everyone else, uh, you're about to see some real bargain days ahead. Uh, I've had some interviews recently with uh, my, my, my peeps in California, just had one with uh, Mark Emery up in uh, Vancouver, Canada, and he's talking about this glut that has happened, you know, since the, it, and it, it took a couple of years to get there, but now it's like, it's there. And he said that he was paying 350 Canadian dollars for pounds that he was paying 3,500 for three years ago. Yeah, and, yeah but again, and, it's supply and demand. Yeah. I, the first time I made it out to California, I'll just date myself. I made it out to California and I watched as people panicked over $2,000 pounds. Right. That's how late that's how late I got to that part. I've been a consumer right. for over 31 years, right? So, yeah. you know, you've said some very kind things at the beginning, but I have no claim to to legacy but as a consumer. Uh, I did not just wake up and say, hey, I want to make my hotel a cannabis hotel. This has been my passion and life's work for 11 very public and open years now. Uh, I've owned the property for four. The very first article that came out when I bought the property said, buyer nabs Capitol Hill mansion with marijuana in mind. <laughs> uh, so it's been in my intention from day one, exactly this. The King of Quality card was never about anything other than lifestyle. For me, a place to hand something to someone that could engage and start a conversation that in many cases led to the sharing of really high quality cannabis. Right. Well, and I think in my introduction, I was referring mostly to your, your legacy status from where you started with this to where you are now. And no, I appreciate where you, that. And where you're going with it, which is also the fascinating part of this, because I mean, you have already, you've had the foresight, you did quite a bit of uh, URL hunting. Uh, uh, you've bought a ton of websites ahead of time. I did. So I own the 420hotels.com, S and S, yes, a the. Uh, but we're now to market. The 420 Hotels is a Nevada corporation that owns Patterson Inn as of January 1st of this year here in Denver, Colorado, and operates a hotel. Uh, the 420Denver.com. The 420Denver is the Colorado operating entity that now has the state conditional and city provisional license to open up our cannabis hospitality lounge. These licenses, the condition is the approval from the city. The provision at the city is the build out. Everything specific or unique about my business licensing right now related to cannabis is resolved, addressed, and finished. I'm just a build out now. That build out is influenced, or, or the, what's needed, or the expectations of that build out are influenced by the type of license, like the HVAC system, but it's still just now a build out. I'm a construction project now, not anything still trying to navigate something unique, nuanced, or different about cannabis. My property is suitable. 
were licensed as far as holding the state and now city uh, provisional license. And if I had that HVAC system in there today, the door could open today. Uh, for me, it's a matter of build out now. For me, it's a matter of securing the funding to do that. The crowdfund campaign we launched on Republic is a very big part of that. Uh, so far, we've identified enough to do some of the significant work to get going. And I believe we have a path that opens this lounge by fall of this year early winter, no later than late winter next year, dictated by how long does it take me to get a 2,500 CFM air scrubber? And, uh, you know, which casino am I, am I bidding against to get it here sooner? Uh, I was raised in New York City, so I do believe that even when someone tells you that something six to eight weeks away, there's a solution much quicker than that. Uh, that has proven to be true um, time and time again. Ask any New Yorker. So the, the, one of the things that's that, that, you know, we've all known places around the world that you can go to that were known as stoner hotels, that you could go and you could smoke in them and nobody's going to say anything about anything. Uh, you, they'll, they'll hand you a, a, a baggie to put around the smoke detector. Uh, so that you, you, you've already got to uh, make sure that, that there's no kind of alerts or problems while you're there. Wait, um, that's a shower cap? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, is, it, is it, I mean, couldn't you turn a naked eye, you know, and say, you know, and, and also, are there any outdoor spaces that you could utilize? And would you be so, allowed to do that? If I let you smoke in the courtyard, then I have to make all the windows in the hotel opaque so someone in the hotel could not be offended by visually seeing someone consume. I'd lose access to one of the patios in one of my rooms. This is literally the rule. Fucking kidding me. This could have made ridiculous. This, could have made this easier had I given up the liquor license or let it move. But again, I'm trying to offer a product that speaks to normalization and destigmatization and just converting this beautiful old hotel into a cannabis castle, though needed in the market is not necessarily a contribution right now to normalizing and destigmatizing. I have a really great core business, mostly of parents of younger people that live in the neighborhood, of staycationers in the state that want to stay and be steeped by the history of the house, second most haunted hotel in Colorado, which brings in its right. fair share as well. So there's all these elements that are already attracting. And I can't tell you what the market is. And I'm not going to tell you what the market is for a business professional or a couple or a young couple with kids that wants to get away for a night and experiment and, and experience. Mm -hmm. I do see my clientele and customer as someone who's paying a premium four-star hotel price. We're not high at downtown. We do charge a premium, but you get a breakfast you don't want to sleep in on, access to happy hour and wine in the basement. And in the not too distant future, this on-site legally licensed cannabis space my most discernible guest for this lounge is likely a 50 plus year old woman who shops at Chico's, not Saks Fifth Avenue, mm -hmm. but still has a sense of style, still has a sense of expression, the sense of self-confidence, and is amongst the largest growing segment of cannabis consumers from a cannabis novice standpoint. And my nine going to 11 room boutique hotel isn't a place to come party on a Saturday night. 
there are those venues starting to emerge. We have a location like that emerging in Denver, one of the other licensees, not my competitor, right? My frenemy, someone who's been innovative, Tetra Lounge, Dwayne, he's been innovative. He did what you were saying, that private club model for years and has found that path to from legacy to license, which has been so elusive for so many, but he's found that path. And I cannot wait for him to be open as he navigates the same HVAC challenges I have. When he is open, I cannot wait to point my guests in that direction for a really great place on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night, or any day, or any afternoon. And my you've got a restaurant, store. and you've got a big kitchen, so you can I do have a big kitchen, there. so the restaurant at the Patterson does support the requirements of the tavern at 12 Spirits, and will support uh, food operations and non-alcoholic beverage operations at the 420 Denver. Oh man, I have, my that. brain is just exploding with ideas here. Of like, you know, and then you need your own transportation. Do you have a nice big uh, van or something? I already have a friend. Um, my 420 Colorado Tours, Michael Eimler, has been uh, leading yes. in that space forever. Um, a friend for many years. Um, and you can smoke in the, the van. You can smoke in the yeah. So he, I, I'm not going to get the van. I'm going to partner with with partners yeah. with companies that That's are already right. finding success in this, and that includes then picking up from the airport, taking you to your first dispensary, then oh. dropping you off at the hotel where you can now enjoy and consume as soon as you check in. Right. And amazing. also, if you do outside events or have some VIP <clears throat> chefs come in to do sure. those kind of Pairing. things that pick yeah. them up with the, the vehicle, bring them in, have them spend the night and then you can take them back home. Those are for local. I love that. Right. For oh, local. God. And then the same note, you know, the ability with the restaurant to bring in a chef, not to infuse. We cannot infuse on site. That has a lot to do with the laws and rules around manufactured infused products with cannabis here in Colorado. There is no direct process to create and then retail. It has to go through a wholesaler. Right? It has to go to a retailer to be dispensed to the retail public. Uh, so I can't do it direct, but wow. pairings of food, pairings of edibles that they can incorporate it into dishes on site is both part of the menu we're building out for that space, as well as a space where then chefs can come in, guests can go to a, a particular dispensary, purchase then what becomes the packet, right? Whether it's by gram or by eighth or a particular strain of particular edible that'll then be incorporated into this meal experience. Delivery is becoming a reality here finally in Colorado and in Denver. So that opens up then the potential for those types of bundled packages to be delivered to the guests. Mm. Again, 42 people for dining, it'll be closer to 30. A room is being set up with about 30 dining on the outside and about 18 really traditional lounge in the middle. But recognizing that when you're smoking like this, sometimes you want to be at a table, especially if you're rolling, especially if you're pairing with food or having something to drink. Uh, that becomes the right setup, as well as a couch or a lounge chair or um, a settee uh, might also then be appropriate for a different, you know, group or, or time of day. Sure. So sophisticated lounge, that customer that I described is already engaging, you know, the address over the door leads a number of our guests to already ask questions that are probably normal in many hotels, but one step further. Um, look forward to having the lounge because the goal is that nobody makes the decision to eat a thousand milligrams of edibles without understanding that it's a thousand milligrams of edibles and that start low, go slow 
engagement through concierge services about best practices, about the best place to go for flour or the best place to go for edibles. I'm excited about adding that to the experience of hospitality as a product of this very unique amenity I'm on the cusp of adding to the hotel. And on top of that, you might eat one of those edibles and get to hang out with some ghosts. Uh, uh, so yes, second most haunted hotel. We were on an episode of Portals to Hell. I, I, it was a 44 minute episode about the Patterson Inn. I burned through 12 of my 15 minutes of fame with Jack Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> Squandered the rest on failed political campaigns. It's <laughs> great. So uh, are they stoned ghosts? I mean, do they seem to be pretty cool ghosts or? Uh... So the very first time I saw the house, people always ask me, do you believe in ghosts? And what I can tell you is on the cusp of four years of ownership of the second most haunted hotel in Colorado, my opinion on the topic is modified and matured quite a bit, a lot through the experiences of my guests. But my very first encounter with the house, March 7th of 2011, I flew out to Denver. Uh, my house had just gone to contract. I was selling a place in Fort Lauderdale knew and felt that Colorado and Denver was on the cusp of something transformative, though it hadn't happened yet, but it felt like the wave was, was, was leading that way and coming ashore. And I came out and I looked at the house. It was 10 o'clock at night. I pointed up and I said, I want to turn you into a marijuana bed and breakfast. And the voice of a woman now believed to be the ghost of Catherine Patterson, the wife of the former Senator, like she was sitting on my shoulder and we're on cable or the internet. So I can use this. She said, and I quote, get off the fucking grass. Ah, that was my first impression ah, with the house. Um, All righty then. So <laughs> the, the tavern is in what was the old smoking lounge of U.S. Senator Thomas Patterson. Uh, he has uh, been reported to make appearances in the house. I've had two guests in the past six months claim a full form apparition in their room. Uh, uh, I've never seen that, but the uh, both guests um, described almost an identical individual. Oh. So I can't dismiss outright uh, something that has its fair amount of consistency. I can say this, it is a happy house. Yeah, it is a spirited house. It's hard to call it a haunted house. I like that. Now, I'm speaking of haunted and thinking about uh, going to another experience, magic mushrooms. How are magic uh, mushrooms? So, I was on the petitioning state? committee. You know, five citizens in Denver had to put our name on the petition, get it notarized, and then include that on the front of every packet as we collected signatures. And I was one of the five. I put my name, home address, and phone number right there on the front page for psilocybin decriminalization in Denver. Fantastic. Excited. Now, my favorite thing is this, and let's just be honest. I do have and do possess some mushrooms here in my home. I do. Let's go. I love that I, at least within the municipality of Denver, in a decriminalized space, am in a safe access space of possessing it. Cool. And then I also really enjoy choosing not to take it. Right? That's the beauty of legalization and normalization of all these topics that in fact, possession then is no longer this, right? Oh, I got it, I got to take it. No, I literally can have it and just have it. That's fabulous. You know, I just finished interviewing, uh, he's on the show from, from Saturday, uh, Ian Bollinger, who is okay. the uh, co-founder of the Psilocybin Cup in Oakland, California. 
And mm -hmm. uh, I learned about the levels of consumption being uh, microdosing, recreational, therapeutical, oh. and, and spiritual. And I'm the a dosing level. I like, I like three to five, seven to 10 micrograms. It's kind of like my target with hallucinogens. Colors become more vivid. The music's a little bit more, right? The little hairs in your ears get a little more tingled. Um, <laughs> that's my sweet spot. Just told this story yesterday. The very first trippy stick, which was one of the early e-pens, the trippy stick, looked identical to a tobacco, liquid tobacco pen, because in fact, they were the same pen. And I was sitting on a flight flying back from LA to Denver. And uh, this, the young woman next to me had her e-cigarette. And she asked the stewardess, can I smoke this e-cigarette? And it was that early day when they first came out. And I don't know if you remember, but in fact, they'd said, yes. And so I didn't ask, I hit mom which looked identical to hers, but mine was a hash pen. And I remember the flight attendant's reaction when I exhaled. She goes, wow, I really like yours. It smells like potpourri. <laughs> Perfect. I love some of the technology, some of the new things. There's inhalers, um, the, the, uh, the, the single uh, non-combustible, inhalable, disposable pens that have like yeah, 90, all of that is wonderful that's the one you all want. of that is wonderful that's your but, you know yes I, I look at you nice twist the master a pre-roll master pre-roll so my pre-roll my my took us no, I said it looks like a pre-roll master. Oh, good. I was going to say. Yeah, no, no, no. That was well done. It looked like some, somebody has uh, got a little experience there. Right? I've, I've done this before. <laughs> now, you're, you have plans to expand uh, internationally. I do. Um, I have 55 domains, which should give you an idea of where I'd like to go. Where do you want to go first? First is I likely, I've got to be careful because there are things right now, I've regulated campaigns, so... Um, I don't really want to go past what's in the domains. You know, I can share that the easiest next path would be anything in Colorado because the 420 Hotels and Nevada Corporation has suitability to own in the cannabis industry here in Colorado mm -hmm. and is a 40% owner of the 420 Denver and would not need to regain suitability to apply for another business license. I have my suitability and been badged for almost six years now here in Colorado, so I don't need to redo that. So the corporate entity and me together then are in a position to move into any jurisdiction in Colorado with the app with a business application. That first step is already satisfied. Uh, though on the other side, you know the, the the vision, the move of moving into the capital markets is to build value for the equity. The value of that equity then can be used as currency. Uh, for me, then something in a ski destination would be ideal in Colorado because. The Patterson Inn is a summer tourist destination location. A ski destination would give us reasons to bring a guest to Denver, pick them up at the airport, bring them to the dispensary, bring them to the hotel, give them that day or two to acclimate to altitude before, again, transferring them up to the mountain in a vehicle where they can smoke. So it becomes this immersive cannabis experience throughout. And so the hope is something a little larger. It's up in the mountains that gives us some spillover appeal to book another room night during our slow season here in the city. After that, I'm a kid from New York. 
I don't envision 200 rooms in New York, but I do envision an intimate boutique hotel with an on-site consumption lounge. I do envision as we move to multiple locations and will honor reciprocity. So membership in one is membership in all. There you go. That membership, again, will always give you access, likely food discounts, use of the room discounts, very rarely or very unlikely overnight accommodation discounts. My core business is sleeping in the beds. Amenities about attracting more reasons to sell more beds. And so I've come up with this belief that you don't discount your core business. You bring and discount amenity to add more appeal, attraction, and, and demand for your core business. Absolutely. Let's you raise the price if you build it right. Now, you, you mentioned New York. Uh, you know Brett Bogue, right? I know Brett Bogue. Okay. I was smoking with Brett Bogue. Brett there was one of the other judges at the squash off. There you go. Well, uh, I, I'm sure that your ear is still full of New York because he did an interview with us here. And that's all he could talk about was uh, you've got a, a window of opportunity here to make a tremendous amount of money because New York right now is it's like New Year's Day there, he said. The sun is shining, make hay. <laughs> One said that recently. It's cliche, but what, what a statement. Uh, there's a woman in the 70s on the West Side who's selling um, $40 eighths in her little corner side bodega. Older woman, she's well in her 70s, she's been in that store forever. And she's already gotten a letter telling her to cease and desist. And basically her reaction is I'll cease when there's another market, but I have no interest in being involved in a legal market. She has interest in being involved in currently the market. Right. And she's making good money and added product that she's selling at her stores because of this. And she'll be out of it later. You know, legacy players are saying that they're used to a world that was 6,000 a pound, 4,000 a pound. Very few of them have an interest in being around when it's $1,000 a pound. Yeah. Well, look at what that'll become a reality. But my business is not the cultivation, sale, or production of cannabis through this hotel. My business is a place to host it. My business isn't 200 rooms or 60 rooms here in Denver. Right now it's nine going to 11. Is there demand for more than that here in Denver? Yes. We need a reefer ramada, a marijuana Marriott. We need these things. There are, is a very large 200-room hotel where every room has a patio where they do what you said before. Turn that blind eye and create a cannabis-friendly space. Market needs this. And at the same note, in an intimate space, I've been approached by business professionals like accountants and lawyers that say, I consume cannabis, but would very unlikely do that in a public place, but I'm really intrigued by the ability to do it in a more intimate space. There you go. And that is the type of, of communal destination amenity I'm looking to create to my hotel. I always wanna be small enough at all of our locations that we can call guests like we do today to get a basic idea of when you're gonna arrive, just so we can make sure we're ready get an idea of dietary restrictions because food, savory and sweet at breakfast every day, cannabis and food pair so well together. I intend for us to always offer that breakfast as part of what we have. Uh, and so, right, these, all these things, these, these come together to give you a reason to make a destination. Right? It was the core of hospitality. Now, I only have four years of experience in hospitality. How am I doing? Because I would trust your response to that because you have what you share is yeah. a career. Well, I have been, tra I have traveled around to all the biggest, greatest uh, hotels and some of the, the most quaint uh, B&Bs that you can imagine in cities all around the world. And, you know, what you're attempting to do and what you want to do here is, again, something I've been 
as I'm here in Portugal, I walk by and I see castle, incredible cannabis castle. There's another one. Oh God, look at this castle. This would be perfect for a cannabis castle. It, it, literally using that terminology on a regular basis around here. And well, I've, I, I've been, I've, I've had my king for years. People ask me, are you trying to be the king of quality? I said, no, no, this isn't a person. This is an invitation into lifestyle. And it was inspired by this king of haunted houses in Denver, this castle sitting on a hill in Denver. Please go to patterson.com and see what I mean. This castle-esque French chateau. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was a place to um, engage this conversation. I wanted to be near the start of it. I just didn't think that start would be eight years after legalization. <laughs> it sounds like you've got so much red tape in every single direction. <clears throat> Isn't that true in everything though? Let me say yeah. this real quick because I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because a lot of people okay. always say that God, I wish they would regulate cannabis like alcohol. Okay. And a lot of individuals who say that have never owned, possessed, applied for an alcohol license. In fact, needs and use hearings associated with a tavern, restaurant, or bar are identical to the needs and use hearing that I went through for my cannabis hospitality license. That's I've cool. also, I went from minimum wage jobs to getting lucky. I did marketing and messaging for startup companies in the late 90s, got overpaid in the irrational exuberance. I had a really big mold melanoma cut off my back at 27 and a doctor said, don't make long-term plans. Ooh. 11 years ago, I got a clean bill of health after cutting 79 plus now moles off. And the doctor said, you're ahead of the curve. We're cutting them before they can metastasize, go out and make long-term plans. My long-term wow, plan true. is this, to lean in and go out and build cannabis hospitality. That was the goal. Didn't think it would take this long, right? The world, maybe it waited, thank you. Um, but we're still on the cusp of this, right? Something new, something innovative. Where does it go next? What does it look like? Who will succeed and fail is still to be determined and written. And will oh. Hyatt, Hilton, Ramada, the IEG, the, the, the big international group, will they be the ones that ultimately get into this? It has a lot to do with banking and finance, has a lot to do with risk. You know, traditional hotel, even if its investors are uh, more progressive or, or liberal in their thought process, especially around cannabis, their money is very conservative. Cannabis people understand an expansion of a business by adding another distribution point another place of sale. And so you increase cash flow by having another vending location where the capital markets and hotels truly appreciate through cash flow over time. It's that combination of this recession proof, not, not recession proof, I'm sorry, inflation proof in the sense that as costs rise, hotel accommodation prices rise with it. It is a cost of service, so it should rise with inflation and our prices have gone up. Um, right, so it also then appreciates through the you know amortizing of a loan, and then finally it appreciates through the appreciation of then of real estate. Uh, that is not just add another cash flow location. That is slow wealth creation. That is a proven model, and so there's that element of what I'm trying to build here with this business. So the 420 Hotels owns our hotel, owns its hotel operations, owns the different entities that have these unique licenses. We are a 60-40 split with me, but that had to do with how you had your res registered agent, 
had to do with uh, access to these licenses right now through the process that required an in-state individual, which here in Colorado I am. Uh, likely the models we expand to other places will bring on new partners and those partners will become part of our corporate entity as far as the parent hotel while also facilitating and serving as our license representative as we move into different jurisdictions. No, but red tape. I've had horse racing licenses in five states, paramutual. And if you've ever held a license in gaming, you know that if you are in a regulated portion of the gaming entity, the racetrack, the back room of the casino, you are required to wear your state issued ID on a lanyard. And if you know anything about state regulated cannabis, the employees and the owners wear badges on a lanyard when they are in these regulated spaces. So having been in paramutual, having liquor and restaurant operations here in Colorado and being badged in cannabis for six years, let me tell you very comfortably and clearly that cannabis licensing is a mature bureaucracy in many jurisdictions, and it looks like a fusion of alcohol and paramutual. They're if all you, regulated by the Department of Revenue. So I hope it's regulated more like alcohol. We're a lot closer to that than people realize. It was 110 pages for the transfer of ownership application for my liquor license. It was 180 pages for my suitability application for the cannabis license. The difference is the cannabis license asked for the bylaws of the business, which were 40 or 50 pages. At the first pass, the liquor license asked for it on the second. That was the difference. So, so let me ask you a question. If, you, if we could, if now you've been through all this now, if you could, uh, let's, uh, let's wave the magic wand again. And you are now governor of the state of, Cal of oh. Colorado, oh. all right? If I'm elected, I will. I would throw the current governor in jail. <laughs> Number one, <laughs> what needs to happen? What would you do? What's the magic wand? It is fundamentally important that home grow and home cultivation be protected everywhere. I do not believe that home cultivation is a threat to um, now licensed markets in the same way to claim that people's microbrew at home has become a threat to um, licensed legal beer or big alcohol. Right. In fact, the microbrew and microbrew at home facilitated this vibrant industry across this country that has hundreds of licensees just here in Colorado, hundreds of licensees just in New Hampshire. And those are two states, as far as the beer markets, that I am somewhat familiar with. Mm -hmm. So uh, home cultivation could lead to popping seeds in a, cultiv a cultivar that we haven't seen yet, right? That, 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 that we need thousands upon tens of thousands of people experimenting and playing to potentially find that next great strain. And there's one element. So we need to protect home cultivation. It, if you wanna play at home, if you can support your needs, desires and passion for cannabis consumption through your own cultivation, good on you. Personally, I do go to the store. Personally, I do go to Verde in Denver, um, organic soil, living soil. Right. Look for uh, legacy that is part of their institution, their cultivars, as well as 
their process is part of comes out of the legacy market. So I, I find that attractive. I want to be supportive of that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so that's the first thing. And that's something we fight for at every state. On the second thing is we keep talking about expungement, but it doesn't happen. We keep talking about getting everyone out of jail, but yet we don't do it. We talk about creating these programs and processes to facilitate expungement, but then time and time again, our legacy friends who have those blemishes on their personal records post on their social media time and time again how onerous the process is or how they weren't successful in navigating the process or that they were so certain this was the one and yet it came through rejected. So let's just stop talking and do it, especially when we have leadership like here in Colorado that is so profoundly progressive and so profoundly pro-cannabis, but yet keeps making decisions that are good for industry and not always good for consumer. I spent, I'm no longer on the board, but I spent eight and a half years on the board of Colorado Normal. Uh, my first environmental activism, my first political activism goes back to reduce, reuse, recycle. So coming from the consumer advocacy side was always a very comfortable space for me. I am a cannabis consumer first. I may be in the business, but first and foremost, the consumer and the impact of the industry to the consumer through price, through quality, through experience, through access, through legitimacy is important for this to all continue. And some of that has been blemished, especially here in Colorado. Um, so I would keep, you know, expunge everybody. Just, just do it. Let everybody out of jail. Just do it. Watch my documentary, Public Enemy Number One. Ice T says at the end, just do it. Just let them out. That was the next thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that you had this really cool documentary that you did with Ice T. How did that collaboration all get together? So I was sitting in the backyard of my house that I'm in right now. Been here nine and a half years. I was smoking some super lemon haze. <laughs> And I was in, so when I, when I did well in my uh, mid to late twenties, I was doing film production. When they found the melanoma, I realized they said, you have five to eight years, you know, film storytelling, that industry doesn't, there's no overnight success. Overnight success is decades of work in the making that lead to opportunity. And you were prepared for it when you got it, mm -hmm. right? That's the truth for most. There's a few stories, right? The Hollywood story. But I was doing that work. I was writing, directing, and producing shorts uh, in my mid to late 20s with a group uh, that I had put together. And the idea was, let's just develop story. Let's just play until we build our craft. And then once I got the skin cancer, I didn't see the 20 years that it would take to see the fruit of that orchard. I see. And so I had other ambitions, one of them to be of use, to be of service. And I ran for office. Uh, those were just different motivations. So fast forward, got a clean bill of health. I'm here in Colorado. Cannabis is my life. Uh, I thought there was a story, this movement from what was originally called 12 to 54, 12% of public support to this now majority at that point, that over the course of making the film went from 54% to 64%. And now is sitting at somewhere about 68 to 69% of national support for legalization. And my question was that public opinion is one thing, public policy is another thing, and sometimes gyrates to a different tempo or frequency. And I wanted to see where they matched up or conflicted. And the Denver Post was very kind. They wrote an article about the film. Opening sentence is Chris Chiari is a character. 
And then four paragraphs later, after laying out my resume, said that though I may have been qualified to speak on the topic, I reserved it for credible people like Keith Stroop from Normal, Ethan Nadelman from Drug Policy Alliance, Neil Franklin from um, Law Enforcement Against uh, the, the Law Enforcement Prohibition Action Network now, which used to be LEAP, Jack Cole, who was the founder of LEAP, mm -hmm. two drug policy czars, I'm sorry, three from, um, one of my favorite was Peter Bourne. Peter Bourne was, was uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, drug policy czar, and he had a very, very, very bad year in 1972. Uh, no, sorry, 76. He just a couple things all came together that didn't end well for him. Didn't dig into that, uh, but as a policy person who was there as the, as the, the um, government sitting here and coming to conclusions that cannabis actually is maybe not all that dangerous, uh, that, that as those conversations are happening, he's trying to lead the policy around that. Um, imagine where we would have been from the over-incarceration that really, you know, let's ask about the impact. What was the war on drugs? The war on drugs was a policy and political tool originally implemented by Nixon to shut down and shut up the freedom of speech that is an inherent right of all citizens of America by making the exhale of cannabis smoke a felony. I was really influenced by a documentary called 13th, which talks about the influence on black and brown friends here in our communities that are the overwhelming um, carriers of the burden of the war on drugs. Uh, and it talks about the over-incarceration and in, in Georgia um, to the effect of elections, a significant portion of the male population of Georgia carries a felony if you have a black or brown face because that became a strategy to influence outcome through participation of elections. And those felonies were drug related. Uh, if you watch Public Enemy Number One, one of my favorite, least favorites, my least favorite, but one of my most, the most striking archival scenes we got is of a man somewhere on the East Coast with a table knife. And he's being arrested for having a knife and it's a table knife, but it was longer than the four inch blade. So they used that as a reason to bang them up. Damn. Right, that, that's the law. So, so the film really dives into that to look of what became a war, a war that was well-funded, a war that brought on all sides and had little opposition from the political perspective. Very significant moment in the summer of 1986 that influences drug policy still to this day. Mm -hmm. This reality that sometimes a big news making event can have a significant impact on where the policy is today. Keystroop always talks about the pendulum swinging. We have swung so far towards legalization that if that pendulum were to swing again, where could it swing? And the arc of history shows an 80 plus pro year prohibition that still struggles to hang on as many of us fight to get rid of it, but have we won yet? No, we're not federally legalized. Have we let won me, yet? Let me, no, you still don't have reciprocity between states as a medical patient, let alone a recreational consumer. What do you think will happen? You know, it's getting closer and closer and, and my sources that are here are telling me that it's really going to happen. It's looking more and more that by the fall, Germany is going to legalize. I don't think that's default. I think that's literally right. It's this, it's the policy 
has matured to a point like Germany is the found, founders of the pharmaceutical industry, right? Wow. Yeah. They cracked oil in 1929 and Bayer was born. Bayer. Right. They took the organic waste of the production of oil and gasoline, the organic compounds, and learned how to synthesize pharmaceutical. There was a big article, I'm sorry, a little article that, that should have made a bigger wave a couple months ago where one of the, I think it was one of the California or Nevada entities sold the last of their plant touching business and said that they weren't getting out of cannabis, they were just getting out of cultivated cannabis, which means they were staying in the space, but were going into cannabinoids, which could potentially be synthesized which very likely will make up the foundation of, of cannabis as medicine going forward as it goes into the pharmacopoeia, which makes it even more important to protect home cultivation, which makes it even more important to protect access to quality and regulated um, licensed recreational markets. Have you had any of the, the, the nano, what we're talking essentially is about some of the nanotechnology uh, products that have been coming out. My friend, um, uh, Renus, who is in charge of Suvernuver, which was the medical marijuana oil company in the Netherlands for many, many years, a huge base of patients, around 35,000 patients, and has just converted into nano-infused water. And he has day and nighttime water using <coughs> hemp. And, and I believe, and I this part, I, I know that it's a synth, they're synthesizing, I believe, that it's THCO and THCP, which is, the, and, and I don't know how much you know about it. I've been learning more and more about it, but. Some of these though exist in such small quantities naturally in the plant mm -hmm. that for them to now be available in such larger quantities that they could be um, micro encapsulated or homogenized into water. Right. Well, uh, the, 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 nano, the nano thing, as, it's understood, as I understand it, is, it works like a Trojan horse. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's, it's taking and, and you're bypassing your, your liver and, you're, and going right into the bloodstream, which yes. is, it gets, so you're able to actually get a higher dosage of your medicine. And a oh, yeah, the fast, the fast acting, right, dissolvables. The science is fascinating. You said it earlier, right? With the torch, right? People went from cannabis to open blasting in their backyard to this oil that really the look at it scares many. Mm -hmm. We know it's hash. We've consumed it. So we know this impact um, physiologically, and phys you know, uh, psycho psychologically and, and how it dissipates, right? Cannabis dab hits you fast. It's hard and also goes away a little faster. You know, when my friend up in Toronto, he presents it as this being the real pathway for grandma to start to ingest cannabis because it, the ahead. best path for grandma to ingest cannabis is through a hand lotion. Hand lotion. It makes the arthritic pain go away. When I would hand out the can quality card, I didn't just hand it to people that I thought would be pro cannabis. I handed it to anybody because I wanted the broccoli, what's your reaction, reaction. I wanted a natural reaction. I've handed out over 15,000 cards, playing cards one at a time mm -hmm. and have a unique conversation then that came with that. And some of my favorite were little old ladies in very conservative places who would yell at me. They'd see the bong or they'd see the cannabis bud or they'd see the weed leaf in the crown and they'd yell at me. <laughs> Somewhere between five to six minutes. No one had more material than that. Okay, <laughs> they didn't. 
And they'd always end with a very leaded, leading question. And it was usually like, does it make the arthritis pain go away? Yeah. That with all their reservations, all their hesitations and all the devil's lettuce and all of the propaganda, they always ended with, does it actually help? So I think the best way for grandma to experience cannabis is through a salt that makes the pain go away. My favorite reaction was one woman, she was well in her 80s. It was right when I started this, it's 11 years ago now. And it was the middle of the country, I think it was Iowa. And she uh, yelled at me and then stopped. And she said, when did they make this illegal? And I said, well, really officially in 1929. And she goes, wow, I was a little girl but I remember walking in on my grandma and she used to smoke that stuff. Mm-hmm. And she was a good woman. And that was her reaction. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden her lifetime of propaganda was put up against not something I had shared, but a memory of her childhood of one of her heroes who happened to be a cannabis consumer back when it was still legal. And that was my favorite reaction. Well, well, I, I love your, I love the, the salve idea, uh, the lotion. That is fantastic. I think that is also a, uh, a, a wonderful path that could open up those, those initial conversations. Uh, Everybody I, I, smoked, right? So grandma probably smoked. Yeah. If grandma quit smoking, smoking likely then doesn't become the path in. I have a friend because of medical issues who's a longtime cannabis consumer, can't consume cannabis anymore. I got him a magic butter machine and now infuses into avocado oil mm-hmm. and likes to take a little bit of a sniffer here and there throughout the day. And that has become the preferred means of consumption uh, directly as a result of smoking no longer being an option. Do you have an all-time favorite? I, I, I mean, we know what you're smoking now, but do you have an all-time favorite bud or a place where you smoked it was the most phenomenal you know one you'll remember for all time like top two or three if all time pick one of them not the best bud but a significant bud okay king of quality card i had made the decision i was moving to denver after so when i didn't get the patterson and i sold my place in fort lauderdale and for two years i crisscrossed the country going from cannabis business events to cannabis cups to meeting legacy producers, getting tours of multi-generational cultivations that were still, right, gray, black market, waiting for this world to change. It was very informative and I actually felt like I had this responsibility. Though I had been a consumer for a long time, I had never engaged in that space. And though I have never been engaged in that business, I'm very grateful for a number of very honest, warm and generous individuals who opened up their lives, their own experience and shared that. And this thing I've always loved about cannabis. And I did that for almost two years before finally um, moving to Denver. Uh, and where were you going on. with it? <laughs> where are we going with this? Uh, Again, oh, my favorite bud. So yes. um, I made the decision to move to Denver And I was in Amsterdam and I didn't fly back to America. I literally took a 28 day trip and finished the lap. And I found myself in Tahiti, which is a French speaking country, 
France at the time when I launched this brand, it was it was legal virtually everywhere to have the image of cannabis, but France or French Polynesia, right? Just the images on this would have been illegal. That has since changed. But I was in Tahiti. I don't speak French. Uh, and I was in the middle of downtown Papeti and I met this, this dude on the corner and just had that look, right? You've been around the street enough in places. You just had that look. And I went up and I handed him the King of Quality card. I don't speak French. He didn't speak English. He looked at the card and started seeing the five different marijuana references. And then it's a, a mirror image. So there's 10 and he <laughs> sees them and he smiles at me. And he goes like this. Yeah. We walk around the back of the building where an older woman was sitting on a stoop knitting. And he showed her the card and pointed to the bud and smiled at her, snapped his fingers. And she handed him a little matchbox, a little slide out matchbox with no wooden matches in it, mm. and a one gram bud. Mm. And he handed it to me. And then he held up the card. And I said, yeah. And he took a three cent card and gave me a bud in Tahiti. Not one word was spoken. Wow. Uh, went back. And so a, a friend of mine went to high school with me when I showed him the picture said, you need to go and take the ferry across that that to that island over there, the island of Morea. And he goes, find Paul and the red truck, chicken <laughs> Paul, Paul Pole, uh, and have a chicken sandwich and a conversation. And I went to the ferry and got across again, I'll speak French, found Paul Pole in a, a, a rotisserie chicken food truck on the side of the road. It's the only non-resort food option on the island of Morea. Paul is French, former executive chef around the world, and he's never been happier than to live on this island with his Moran wife uh, and sell rotisserie chicken. Uh, and what he explained to me was uh, what was happening in Tahiti and about how that bud got into my possession and why it was in that matchbox. It's so humid there that they literally take bud at a time, put it in the matchbox and microwave it to dehydrate it wow. and then distribute it. Now what that's doing to the trichomes, we know, don't, oh don't microwave your bud. <laughs> but as far as a memorable bud, where uh, the transaction or the engagement or the conversation and ultimately the communal sharing of cannabis all happened without words around imagery. And when that happened, what I realized was that this image helped tell a story in the same way that I hoped that house would one day would, would have told a story if I could have possessed it 11 years ago. And so it all comes full circle. Here we are now, I now own the Patterson Inn coming up my four year anniversary. Uh, King of Quality, again, is a lifestyle space, facilitated a lot of really enriching conversations and, and, and experience around cannabis. You know, the made hash in the woods, took a big ball of hash back and shared it with my friends, right? Those are the kinds of things that um, are becoming more common, but uh, 11 years ago was still, you know, pretty on the edge. Right. Uh, you know, wh where are we going? What are we doing? What happens is still to be written. What models will work in cannabis hospitality are still unknown. I do think someone will make large destinations that will, you know, be good price and very reasonable and a very attractive product market. I do think cannabis hospitality should be and will be a crowded business. We will have arrived when it's a crowded business. But hospitality is a crowded business. 
both from the national big chains that have consolidated most of the brands that you know, all the way down to the independent operators in the space that I'm in. It's a very crowded business. Can you carve out and do something unique? I took a business that had 30% occupancy, 38% occupancy when I bought it, and we're at 56 now. Beautiful. And profitable. I'm surprised they haven't opened a big hotel in Las Vegas yet. Big hotel in Las Vegas. Uh, those licenses don't exist yet. Somebody just bought the hotel that I do think could work, but will it get licensed is the question. Which one? Which one? Uh, the art, it used to be the artisan and the group out of Arizona. There's a group out of Arizona that is doing cannabis friendly that has made a move to move into uh, Nevada. It's very bold. They're very bold. I believe they're in a strong position to be bold, which is important. Like I said before about the, what you need in order to do this. I'm short right now. Uh, you know, COVID has been a challenging, uh, but I'm positioned to keep going. Uh, but certainly not positioned to just, you know, do it and, you know, buy hotels all over the place. I don't have money like that. Yeah. Uh, I've got enough to keep my mortgage paid. Uh, I've got enough to put hours and significant hours both into the operation of the hotel and pull some shifts, as well as that structural business work that it takes to, to keep five corporations um, active and structured and interacting uh, it's one location, but these different corporate structures become a prerequisite to having these very divergent entities. You know, the cannabis business is structured as a C-Corp because what is the federal legal, uh, uh, recognition of cannabis? There isn't any. What is the potential for uh, tax concerns around those assets and what that means? Those concerns exist now within a corporate entity. Uh, when you structure businesses, uh, ownership, participation, how movement occurs between ownership and the company is different between an LLC, an S-Corp, and a C-Corp. Uh, these are things I was exposed to um, early in my career that have just become fundamental knowledge needed to you know, understand the difference of how they relate together and <clears throat> why certain things would be structured certain ways. And that'll be make a big difference when everything when the, the it's time for the switch to be hit, and it'll happen quick, won't it? Normalization's coming. I do see that. I really hope we can get to the banking thing sooner than later. Mm. And Al, everyone in cannabis has checking. Okay, anyone who's in cannabis that has not yet found a path to depository and checking needs to look a little harder, needs to ask their peers in their state, in their industry, because there are depository solutions in the regulated cannabis industry. This is not banking. This isn't debt, this isn't credit, this isn't loans and lending. This is literally, we'll receive your cash, we'll take it as a deposit, we'll let you write a check against that balance. It's and we'll get to talk to the Gazzini brothers and we'll come down and maybe we'll do it. Right. Like so the banking does exist, but the bank or these financial institutions are taking those funds, counting it, wrapping it in what's called the pink slip and shipping it off to the Fed in their overnight deposits every night. Most people don't realize is that most money that goes into a bank gets packaged, shipped off to the Fed. Fed replaces it with new bills, sorts through the old ones, gets rid of the damaged ones, keeps the other ones puts it back into circulation and that's happening on a daily basis. And so cash coming out of regulated cannabis is generally put in through these suspicious sources and wrapped in what's known as the pink slip. And so those cash transactions. 
still offering banking. This is more about compliance. Most of these banks are charging between $1,000 to $2,000 a month in service fees for this types of service, but at least it's taking out the $100,000 transaction between a manufacturing-infused product company and a large multi-location dispensary and turning that into a check and an invoice, which speaks, for, again, to the legitimacy of where the industry is going and needs to continue to go. So how do people get in touch with you if they want to tap into this wide uh, splash of, of knowledge that covers the entire industry? <laughs> how uh, are we tapping into you? Well, thank you first off for the time. I hope that it's been a, a worthwhile conversation. I know I've rambled a couple of times. No, 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 that's fantastic. That's what I'm saying. I mean, we've you've covered a, a wide range, way more than I was expecting. And that's fantastic. Um, you can be helping film. P-E-N-O film.com. That's public enemy number one film.com. Uh, we did win the Seattle Film Festival in 2020 and Best Producer in the Storyteller awarded our premiere at Doc LA. Uh, the film is available on Pluto and Tubi uh, for free with commercials, or if you want, you can rent it or buy it on Amazon uh, and Amazon Prime. Uh, the Patterson Inn, pattersonin.com, an old historic purported to be haunted, a boutique hotel with a breakfast you don't want to sleep in on uh, and beds you don't want to get out of in the heart of downtown Denver is open, uh, been open for nine and a half years and doing well. Please come stay. Uh, cannabis is our next step. And of course, that's with the 420 hotels, the 420hotels.com. For the 420 hotels, I welcome anyone interested in this, in the property, to please come to republic.com. Look up the 420 hotels on republic.com. And I am right now selling equity, ownership, physical ownership in the real estate, in the operations, in the licensing, and in the branding with the intention that this entity will be the parent company that owns and operates boutique hotels in multiple markets and jurisdictions as we grow going forward. Um, I think that's all of it. Sounds fantastic. Uh, and I will be putting up all of the links and everything inside all of our, our notes down below. And uh, I, I, I absolutely, I'm going to tell you right now, I'll be there as soon as I can get over to the States. I'm getting over there. I'll be staying right there with you. And right. if my room is reeking, it's because it was the ghost. I'm just telling you. Yeah, and I don't do put it. me in that space. You know, you know, I do have, so I can't imply or express consent, but we have an ability to be respectful to legal adult decisions on property. Uh, I'm just so excited to get to the space of licensed because safe, legal, and licensed, again, might as, as, as cannabis friendly is still, you know, my interest. If I get on a plane, I'm looking cannabis friendly but we are maturing and normalization will continue when we open up this market to more participants who are kind of novice and kind of curious, knowing that good experiences for those two market participants leads to goodwill, goodwill leads to more dialogue in their home states. And this continuation of normalization has been a product of that. And so I can't wait to share that. And I don't care if we go legal worldwide tomorrow. It still took a couple years of living in Colorado in a legal state, purchasing legal cannabis and smoking in my backyard near daily for it to not feel off. Yeah. Or me not to be aware of this, like, wow, I can't believe this. 
And so I do believe there's still room in the market. And then I'll finish with this. Cigar lounge, hookah lounge is proof that smoking still exists in licensed indoor regulated environments, but they only exist in licensed legal regulated environments. And though it will be possible and is possible to smoke cannabis anywhere you want, that you can smoke a cigarette in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, where in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut can you smoke a cigarette? Really not too many places anymore. And certainly when you talk about indoor or as an amenity or accessory to other type of business, that will require a license in every jurisdiction that does it. And that will still take a minute to get there. And then the engagement and experience of that licensed market for some portion of that market participant will be unique, will still feel special for quite some time. Uh, and then again, I'm nine rooms going to 11 in Denver. I am not a 200 room hotel. And for me, cannabis is amenity, which needs to complement and be equal to and, 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 and on par with a breakfast you don't want to sleep in on and a bed you don't want to get out of. And as long as those other elements are there, I believe that in a crowded space, in a normalized world, in a legal world, there is room for the intimacy of the 420 hotels and the product we're bringing to market. And I can't wait to be part of it, buddy. I hope we get a chance to uh, uh, see each other soon. And uh, I hope that it happens so fast that you want to open up a spot right here in Portugal. I'll be right there. I do. There. I do, Portugal. You know, I, I, I have a desire for this in Amsterdam, not a place to sell, but a place where you feel comfortable going to a lobby lounge and consuming, which even in a city like Amsterdam, doesn't really exist except in a few hostels, doesn't really exist in the boutique hotel environment. And I believe even a 15 to 20 room location is relevant in an Amsterdam 20 years in the future because it is still one of the most beautiful picturesque cities in the world. It does still have a vibrant art culture and, and culture that is attractive and worth traveling to. And I do think cannabis, even as the world legalizes, will still exist in some meaningful way in Amsterdam. And as long as those things do exist and the city is still that appealing, there is a market for a boutique hotel that speaks to a sophisticated traveler that is doing all of these other things and also looking for and not looking over my shoulder or walking down the street and smoking option. Well, That's you'll get a chance tomorrow. Uh, I'm, I'll be uh, publishing, or not tomorrow, on Wednesday, I'm publishing uh, an interview with Derek Bergman, who is the head of the VOC. He is the most knowledgeable, ear-to-the-ground uh, reporter uh, covering all of the cannabis news in the Netherlands. And there's a lot of crazy shit going on there right now. And they're, they're talking <coughs> about closing up all of the... Uh, it's the mayor, right? Yeah. And I think we've yeah. seen two mayors in a row that have had a similar perspective that is out of line with the city council. I think they're right when it comes to the greatest threat to the um, sanctity and, 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 and beauty of Amsterdam is a lot to do with alcohol. Yes, exactly. It has a yeah. lot to do with those, those, um, those waffle stores. Right. There have been many waffle stores in Amsterdam. There's, there are t-shirt stores in the beach communities of <laughs> South Florida. Few too many, like there are too many coffee shops. Um, I don't know, know. I you know, are there too many coffee shops? There's- Yes, um, I wrote the Connoisseur's Guide to the Amsterdam Coffee Shops and I am still the only person to go to market? every single coffee shop. What, wouldn't the market dictate though? So- The location that fails, location, location, you know? Yeah. And obviously 
basically these businesses in some cases have sustained. They shut down because of regulation, not because of a failure of cash flow. Right. Well, there's, there's, a, I, I think that out of the 168, they could lose probably about 80 of those and it wouldn't, it wouldn't really hurt them. I too read badly. that and I saw that, but I, I thought that that number was specific to simply bringing it down to the satisfaction of local or actual demand of, of right. Dutch demand. I mean, there's, there's, there's a ton of them that, that have three cultivars in there. You walk in and you have a choice of, you know, this, this, or this. And sure. And they're but again, wouldn't the market cold. decide that? Should the yeah. market decide it or should a mayor who doesn't like weed decide it? Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm excited to see what's going to happen. Um, I, I think that, again, here in Europe, a lot of it is going to have to do, everything's going to be predicated on Germany. And uh, who would have ever thought that that's going to be the leader of our salvation here in Europe is going to be Germany. But I, I'm sure. excited. And uh, we'll see how fast I, Italy follows. Yeah. We'll see how oh, fast Spain just, considers embracing true regulation. And let's just think about Oktoberfest a little bit with the cannabis part locked in, uh, dialed in with it. Ooh. Yes. Right. What would happen if these things commingled and existed? Mm -hmm. And I understand, but, right, as being someone who consumes frequently and is comfortable in the space of both and, and holding a glass of wine in a joint, um, right? I've seen some people who've overindulged very quickly Right. Well, the alcohol is the real issue. And I mean, you, you never see anything crazy in Amsterdam that that is a danger to the public until you see a bunch of hooligans that are watching a soccer game that are singing a song, uh, the, the fight song, and everybody's drunk and somebody gets thrown into the into the, the canal and, you know, or that, like they say vomits in someone's flower garden. Um, yeah. And that, that is, out. you know, what's interesting also that, that we were talking about this, you Never, ever, ever hear anyone, even in Amsterdam, walk into a bar and say, I want the strongest alcohol that you have in here. But it's yeah. the number one thing you'll hear from people coming into a dispensary or- a I don't know. We, I, don't, I, I would disagree with that. People walk into a bar all the time and ask for just a shot. Oh, well, no, no. I'm talking about specification, like with no regard for- a flavor or a terpene or anything else just coming and say, I want the strongest that you have, which is something that a lot of bud tenders will tell you is the number one thing that they get when somebody comes in for the first time. What's, okay, the, fallacy well, of, what's the, the strongest fallacy thing you have? Yeah. The fallacy of, of regulated cannabis has been the chase to THC and not the chase to quality, consistency, diversity, flavor. Uh, I am most of the way through. I still need to go do, go do my live assessment, but I've been studying the Gangier course. Oh, right? fantastic! That yeah. they've been that, that that they're teaching. Right, fascinating. Yeah, right. I highly and, recommend. Uh, I'm I'm getting ready to interview uh, my my Obi Wan Kenobi, who is the head of the Tricome Institute that has yeah. the interpreter program, and uh, he's he's a Rain Man esque. How incredible he is with his knowledge base the about terroir. Right, that influence of the local environment, the conditions, the moisture, the rain, the soil, the talent of the of the gardener, right? That ultimately um, results the regional influence, that uniqueness from local forest or or soil composition or fungus or bacteria, right? That ultimately leads to different terpene expressions. It's just mm -hmm. fascinating. 
uh, to, to study and, and uh, to see ways that this is trying to be, you know, recreated through living soil and in indoor cultivations as, as well as what's happening outdoor as you take off the uncertainty of criminality and add the um, potential to finish a crop without that same fear, right? What happens if I get caught? I, it's, it's, let's see where it goes, you know, outdoor, indoor. I think the next big thing in America, once we see normalization, will be um, import-export. Mm -hmm. uh, import-export will fundamentally change. I think Colorado will survive in an import-export market, at least from our manufactured-infused products. I do think a number of Colorado MIPS do nationalize in a federal market uh, because now the inputs are coming from Oregon or Northern California at the $400 pound prices might be a peak uh, right. one day in the future. Uh, well, if we then, get open borders, if we get open borders, and if you talk to, to Brett Bogue, you know, Mexico is going to overwhelm all of us. It'll just, it'll be like a, the, the, a, a tsunami, I think was the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll always have shipping. Um, international is likely to become a harder hurdle than domestic. Though the conversations, you know, Canada, I could see America and Canada opening that border around cannabis mm -hmm. in the not too distant future. But not Mexico. Come on, just been, we've got a we've got a wall up. <laughs> we've we we not ideologically, we've always had a wall up. Yeah. Fundamentally, at least from you know the over-politicization of of economic struggle in Mexico that resulted in the migration into America in the 80s. Right, was demonized, happens again, there's an invasion. When in reality, it's in many cases, well-meaning individuals that are in search of opportunity to feed family. Yeah, to feed family. And when you get to the fundamental human motivation there, wouldn't you rather have a neighbor who would work so hard to provide to their family that they'd risk everything for them? Mm. Or the one that, you know, doesn't care? Yeah. Heavy so we'll see. We'll see, yeah. but international, look, I think we could still be a decade away from national, partially because of just how it, long it takes for political change. Some of the elected officials that still have 15, 20 years left in their career that have been in for 10 or 15 years that still come in with this very institutionalized viewpoint still a product remnants of the war on drugs lots of blue hair still in power and that's uh, a problem they're not all john boehner who you know saw the went saw the, the green light. and green how do you feel about like him and that product and that company because i get all kinds of different types of inputs on that one being I love that, you know. the microbrew industry that allows local tap rooms all the way up to the continuation and the dominance of uh, Anheuser-Busch and IBEV and, and, and Molson Coors. Mm -hmm. Okay, that a high school classmate of mine could launch a new beer called Island down in the South Carolina area that's now made it to the Mississippi and will cross the Mississippi in the not too distant future, right, in growing markets as a local startup, unique twist uh, in a space that could still exist. 
That's cool. So that means there's room in this. Look, uh, a, a, a very influential individual in Colorado cannabis and international and national cannabis, Kayvon Calabari, owns a pizza shop. Four locations, about to expand to five, and I think the sixth is showing up down in Trinidad, where he's been doing a lot of economic development work uh, and spreading his 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 Midas touch into a new market and region, right? But that's a four location Denver pizza shop that competes against Papa John's, Little Caesars, Domino's, and a place called Sliceworks that at one time was the best New York style pizza in Denver, and they had two locations. And it makes many cases, every one of those businesses, I'm sorry, in every one of those cases, those businesses also offer delivery. So what happens, again, looking at pizza and looking at microbrew, um, so what? There's a big cultivation. So what? They're building 100,000 square foot facilities. And they're also, what many of those MSOs were throwing funny money at build-outs, getting headlines, crop failure after crop failure, facilities that actually fundamentally aren't designed to deliver what they thought they could. And so those assets are being um, sold for fractions of their build-out costs. Some new enterprise or industry will likely find a use for that space and turn it into something. Maybe it's indoor farming. Maybe it's vertical in uh, farming, maybe it's basil and tomatoes, if not cannabis. Yeah. Uh, so the facilities will go to use. So do, will those models work? Will they work in an open market? We need a space then that facilitates more licensing. Million dollar licenses does not function facilitate a vibrant market. The same note, Oklahoma is a good example of what happens when you make a $2,000 license and let anybody in it makes it hard then for true masters and artisans to stick out because there's just so much becomes market driven supply and demand where carving out the space of connoisseur becomes a little harder because of saturation. So yes, but the cream happening. then rises to the top that way. And that's how it you will. end up that's with the, the, the big episodes. I guess episodes that are good will continue to thrive. Some of them will begin to take on smaller brands, keep them under their smaller labels and, and keep their local uniqueness while also consolidating those assets like an IBEV has done. Right. Well, at the same note, one-off operations still can survive and thrive. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I hope we can get to this point. I'm crossing my fingers and I am, I'm again, honored to know you and thrilled. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think you're doing, I have so much respect for you and, and the challenges you've already went through. I'm sitting here listening to all of the, the hoops that you're having to jump through. And, you know, again, uh, uh, thank you for, for doing this. Cause I know that down the road, this is going to make it be a lot easier for other people because of oh, sucks being first through. and yeah, yeah. it's going to be easier for others. And that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I will, uh, I will see you as soon as I can. I can't wait to get to Colorado and, uh, I will, uh, we, we shall, we shall party properly. Thank you. Nice talking to you, Captain. Thanks Great. for having me. Catch you soon. Well, this is bad out. I'm a little concerned about this Ouija board. I'm just going to tell you right now. Oh, no. What, they sent me out the back door? Uh-oh. I'm not sure I like being outside. This is messed up. Um, 
I'm sure everything's fine, though. I mean, they know I'm here, you know, just as a good guy, right? Um... Oh, okay. I gotcha. Um, he's missing a head. I'm just saying. You're an arm. Um, okay, well, I'm sure that Chris's place is a lot better than this one. Um, okay, so this is where, see, if this was a real 420 hotel, we would be really high right now. <laughs> the good news is I am really high right now because I would never walk into a place like this. I'm just telling you right now. That's a bad sign right there. Bad sign. I take it that's fine. Supposed to help me. I unlocked my achievement. Oh great. Just what I want. How do I turn the thing? Oh, good, it works. Okay, hi. Oh, she's cute. Okay, so... You guys like haunted hotels? See, I don't. I'm not a fan of these. Not by any stretch of any imagination. I don't like I got a back door to me now. Somebody could come from behind me. Oh, shit. And that's closed already? Oh, dude, I don't like this. This is a uh, no bueno. What we call no bueno. Okay, I'll just walk through here. I'm sure. Oh, hello. Oh, shit. No, 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 no. no. I, I think that this is going to be over quick. All right, so listen. I appreciate you guys watching the show. And, 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 um, uh, we'll be back on Saturday with... One of my true, true, true masters, um, Max Montrose. I can't even begin to tell you how amazing this conversation was with Max. 
And um, I will see you on Saturday. Peace out, people. Oh, oh, great. Stuff oh, no. Uh-oh. We got lights in here, though. Okay, we're cool. Okay, we're fine. There's lights in here. I'm sure everything's fine. Oh, shit. What's that? Hello. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's been fun, everyone. I will see you on Saturday with Max Montrose. I'm going to have to smoke a lot more before you think I'm going to walk up that. Not happening. Bye, everyone. <laughs> it's Captain Hooter. Far out, man.